All right, I got 6.30 by my clock. And so we are gonna get rolling. Uh, how many of y'all do not have a piece of paper? How many of y'all have it? Show it to me, prove it. You didn't throw that thing away, did you? Because I know what y'all do. I see what you do, I see what you do. All right, y'all are gonna need this. You are desperately going to need that here in a moment. I'll explain here in a bit. Uh, I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna get into tonight's material. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have a chance to be able to gather tonight, to be able to look at your word, to be able to comprehend what it is that you have uh, delivered once for all to the saints. God, I pray that we would be mindful of how you might be teaching us tonight about a topic that, frankly, many of us are fairly familiar with. But God, I pray that we would engage our minds and our hearts in a way um, with your spirit that would cause us to comprehend a little bit more about what it is that you have written for our instruction. And so, Father, I pray um, that you would be honored tonight. And as is my custom, I would ask for everyone here to pray for me. Just take a couple moments to pray that what I say would be accurate, would be clear, be beneficial. Take a moment and pray for me. Father, I am thankful uh, to be able to teach, to be able to lead our church in um, discovering for ourselves what your word says to us, uh, but I also recognize that I need your help. And so, Father, I pray that you would send your spirit tonight for me uh, as I speak, that I would say the right things at the right time in the right way, and I would say only what is in harmony with the gospel, and that you would send your spirit so that we might comprehend what it is that you are saying to us tonight. We expect to hear from you tonight. We look forward to that, and we pray that you are honored by our effort. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's get our running start. This is where we were last week. Um, I was hanging out at the very back uh, playing the heckler, which was a favorite uh, thing of mine to do. Um, so Dr. Matz last week was able to cover for us because uh, in case y'all didn't hear, me and Anthony were literally flying in from Texas. And we were supposed to get here at like uh, 6, 5.36 or so, and I didn't want to schedule me teaching and possibly be late. So Dr. Matz was here and I got to hang out in the back. So what he covered was prophetic literature. Um, that was the last genre of our Old Testament um, content. And so tonight we are diving into the New Testament. And so Dr. Matz did a really good job, I think, of um, illustrating um, what the 16 prophetic books are, where they are divided, the time frame, why there are four major and 12 minor and kind of how we make that division. I think there was a lot of really good information there. We did an examination of Jonah. We looked at Hosea chapter five, all sorts of good stuff. So what we're doing tonight though, is we are leapfrogging out of the Old Testament into the new, and we're gonna spend the next two weeks on the gospels. We're gonna spend two weeks talking about four books. Um, and so to that end, let's get a, uh, let's get a run and start from the last two weeks. So. Two weeks ago, we talked about the Proverbs, and the reason why that's such a big deal is that we had to cover prophetic literature in order to understand Proverbs, and to understand, I'm sorry, not prophetic, to understand poetic literature. And in order to understand poetic literature, you kind of have to have an idea of wisdom literature that goes along with it. So, what we said two weeks ago is that Proverbs are not about promises. They are not promises, they are about probabilities, and that they, by nature, are poetic. And so we have to import all of our understanding of poetic literature into Proverbs. Also, 
Last week, we said we have to import what we understand about uh, poetic literature into the prophets because guess what? A huge chunk of how they write is poetic. It comes out in parallelism. It comes out with these couplets as it were. And so we have to import all that together. And Dr. Matz didn't use these exact words, but he absolutely talked about this concept. Uh, the way that I describe the prophets is that they are covenantal enforcers. What they do is they hold up the covenant that Israel was held to and their standards of how they're supposed to act. And then he looks at the nation and then says, this is what you're doing. Do those things match? And when they say, well, no, not really, he just then pronounces, this is what God has promised. If you obey the covenant, there will be blessing. If you disobey, there is cursing. Bring your actions in line with the covenant. They are just enforcing and reminding the nation about the terms of the covenant. And here's the other thing that Dr. Matz didn't explicitly say this, but he absolutely had the tone of this, is that the announcement of judgment is a gracious act. If you hear nothing else about the prophets, especially the minor prophets, because no one likes reading the minor prophets because they're angry all the time. Well, they're not angry. All they're doing is just upholding Israel's conduct and comparing it to the, to the covenant. But all they're doing is saying, look, God is giving you an opportunity to repent. Here's just a simple question. Does God have to warn you that he is going to judge? And the answer is no, because the alternative is he could judge without warning, and he would be absolutely justified. So when he announces it, that is a gracious thing. When you put those two things together, that the warning comes by way of holding their conduct up against the covenant and says this is where there is disunity or there is this um, incongruency in their actions. And he just says, change, repent, return. Yeah, that is the prophets in a nutshell. Cool? All right. So here's the deal. Everybody hold your little piece of paper up. R.O., did you get one? Sharon, did you get one? All right, hold your piece of paper up. You are going to need this. Here is what is about to happen. I am going to talk for four minutes. I am going to talk, and you are going to take notes. You must take notes. You must take notes. That's the whole point of this exercise. Take notes. I'm going to speak for four minutes, and then, here in a little bit, after we get done with our content, we'll come back to it, okay? Does anyone have any questions about what's going to happen? Yeah, you better, because that's what I'm talking about, and you better take notes about what I'm talking about. Yes. You don't need them in there. It's not about it's not about the rest of our content. I promise you. I need you to take notes about what I'm about to talk about. Okay. I am going to start a timer for four minutes. There is a pen in the row in front of you or somewhere around you. If you don't have a pen, I will throw mine at you. Okay. Take notes. You need to do this. All right. Are we square? All right. So I want to tell you about uh, how me and Casey met and how me and my wife got married essentially. Um, so in 2005, I was a 21-year-old combat vet, and I was starting at the University of Arkansas there in Fayetteville. So I was a 21-year-old freshman combat vet, and in 2005, there weren't a ton of us running around, okay? By the way, this is a totally real story, so you just take notes on what you think is the most appropriate thing. 
And so if anyone who's worked around college students have actually shared this story from the stage before, like you can tell when you're looking at freshmen, like there's just something about freshmen, you know who they are the moment you look at them. And likewise, you can look at upperclassmen and you just know immediately they're upperclassmen. Um, Casey was a sophomore when I was a freshman. And later on when we started dating, she revealed to me that her first memory of me was in the BCM in a building about as long as this, uh, this sanctuary is. I was standing near some freshmen and she walked in the door and she saw all the freshmen down there and her first thought when she saw me was, wow, who's that really old freshman, <laughs> right? So, like, I don't know what it was about my aura or whatever it was that just exuded freshman, but she immediately pegged me as a freshman and also really old. So fast forward a year or so, um, we had the same circle of friends um, from the BCM, the Baptist Collegiate Ministry, as well as uh, First Baptist Fayetteville, where we were members at our church involved in our college ministry. We had the same circle of friends. We hung out and eventually, right before the semester began, I, uh, I asked her on a date. I said, hey, I want to go on a date with you. Would you like to? And she said, yes. And I was like, excellent. So let's figure out when we're going to do that. Here's the problem. Casey was a officer at her sorority and they did stuff on Monday nights. And because it was the beginning of the semester, Friday and Saturday were really sewn up with recruitment. I was leading a leadership team at the BCM and my event that I was in charge of was on Tuesday nights. Wednesday was church. Thursday was our midweek worship service, which I also helped lead in um, for the BCM. And then Friday and Saturday was recruitment for the BCM. And then Sunday was church. So literally, Every day of every week in the evening was not free, and I'm not joking. We're talking like two months out. So it was going to be like two months before we could even go on a date. And so out of frustration, I just kind of looked at her and was like, okay, well, what about lunch? Like, can we do a lunch? And so we start looking at our schedules, and sure enough, we found an opening that was like on a Tuesday for lunch for like 45 minutes. And so our first date was a day date for lunch at a subway because that was the only place we could go and get back on campus in time and we've been married for 13 years right so here's the beauty of it if you need some help like working through uh, some family members you have that are working through how to how to woo some young woman that they are pursuing send them my way i will train them up and i will get them taken care of and they'll be married for 13 years in no time about a couple weeks later, I remember talking with my mom saying, hey, yeah, I've gone on a date with this girl. She's uh, an electrical engineer. She's short, redhead. Um, we met, you know, last year. I've known her for a while. And like, as I'm telling this story, I see my mom, like as we're driving, and she's just got like this, like this really goofy grin on her face. Mom, what is it? Oh, nothing. Mom, I, I can see it's something. What? Oh, nothing. Mom, just say it. Oh, it's nothing. It's I just can't wait to have little redheaded grandbabies. That was her first words out of her mouth. And we've been married for 13 years. Three minutes and 47 seconds. Okay? Everybody show me your piece of paper. Throw it in the air. Put it in the air. Pins down. Now put the piece of paper down. Don't touch it again. So, let's talk about the Gospels. What I want to do is I want to talk about the general characteristics of the Gospels. If you were to say what kind of books in the Bible you are most familiar with, how many of you would say, I'm probably most familiar with one of the Gospels? I've read it the most. Okay. 
normally you get either the Gospels or something like Ephesians. How many of y'all would say it's one of the shorter letters in the New Testament is one you're probably most familiar with? Okay, there you go. What about the rest of y'all? Like, nobody else raised their hands. Like, what, what, what other answers? How many of y'all are, like, just really hung up on Habakkuk? Because I love Habakkuk. So here's the deal. Like, we are really intimately aware of what is going on in the Gospels. I think for a lot of us, if we got real honest, we would probably say, yeah, but I probably don't actually know what all's in the Gospels, though. Right? Let's, let's just make it a safe place here real quick. No one else is watching online. We'll turn the camera off for this. We really won't. Um, but make, let's make it a safe place. How many of us would say, yeah, I probably do not know nearly as much about the Gospels than I probably should? And there's the danger right there. I think we all have this really weird familiarity with the Gospels, but yet when we get real honest, we're like, yeah, but I really don't know what's going on with that. Well, let me help us tonight. So I want to give us some basic characteristics about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we're going to talk about how to read each one of them kind of independently um, from each other and also what to do with all of them. And then next week, we're really going to start combining about how to deal with individual portions within the Gospels. Here's the first thing I'll say. The Gospels are singularly focused on giving an account of Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. What other book in the Bible is singularly singularly concerned with that topic. None, which makes them unique, right? So here's the thing about the, the Gospels, though, that they have a very unique content and subject matter. However, they are not so unique in that the way that they are written is incredibly familiar because basically they are historical narrative or narratives. However, there's also poetry in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 1, 2, whenever we have Mary singing this song after she hangs out with Elizabeth for a while, that is poetry. And guess what? It mirrors Hannah's song, Samuel's mother from the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 1. It mirrors thematically and even in some of the key ideas, it mirrors section for section what Hannah said. And so Mary is actually modeling her song after a prayer of Hannah. So there's poetic literature within the Gospels. There are genealogies. Matthew and Luke have genealogies. There are other highly metaphoric language and highly poetic language and figurative language that is all throughout the Gospels, which we'll talk about next week. But here's the point. Generally speaking, they follow a form that we're fairly familiar with, but the content is what makes it difficult. Okay. So we'll talk about that here a little bit more. What else do we need to say about the Gospels? They contain Jesus' teaching that was delivered to him by the Father. Okay? I think a lot of times we like to say Jesus was an excellent teacher, and he was. And I am certain that Jesus was able to produce material on the fly, but by his own accounting, let's look at John 14, 23 and 24, Jesus' own words about what he says is this. Jesus answered this man. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And he will come and make, uh, come to him and make our home with him. And whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So he says, like, the teaching that I'm giving you is coming directly from my father. That is John 14, 23, and 24. 
So John 14, 23, and 24, right? So this is the teaching that Jesus gave, and this is a really critical thing for us to note. How much of this did Jesus write down? None. He wrote nothing down for us, and that's okay. We'll talk about that's why the Gospels even come about in the first place, but this is one of those things we got to see that the teaching that he was delivering was coming through the Father, or from the Father to the original disciples and through the apostles, and then it uh, filters down until we get the evangelists, the ones who write the Gospels, and then it eventually arrives to us. Okay, That's the process. And here's the last thing I want us to see is that the Gospels are these written accounts of how God's kingdom is inaugurated under the New Covenant. Whenever Jesus comes in, things start changing. We're no longer looking at the Old Covenant way of living. We are looking at something new, okay? And here's a scripture for you concerning that. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 14. This is Jesus um, we're going to hear his voice, but this is after John the Baptist, your boy Johnny B, after he gets arrested, right? Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John, John the Baptist, your boy Johnny B, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, quote, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There is something new, and it starts with Jesus being there, announcing the kingdom, telling them what to do, repent and believe in the gospel, and that there is this inauguration of God's kingdom coming in. Think of it this way. Um, we have talked about that way back in the Old Testament, one of the clear ways to talk about and think about the Old Testament is that there are these promises that are made, but in the New Testament is where we see promises being fulfilled. So you have promise and fulfillment. That starts with the Gospels, okay? There is a distinctive background of the Old Testament that's completely saturating the, the Gospels. It absolutely is there. It's ever-present, but there's also this other current that's underneath everything with the Gospel writers, and that is this high Christology. They are elevating Christ. They are elevating the Christ, who is Jesus, and discipleship. That if he is the Christ, if he is the Lord, if he is God incarnate, and he is ruling in a kingdom, then he has followers, and those followers are called disciples. That's in many ways the purpose of those four books, to talk about those things. Okay, so, when I tell you that there are four gospel accounts, what is a natural question that you might then have? About four. A natural question might be, why four? Why not six, ten, or a hundred? Why not? Four is a good number. More than one or two. You don't have to have all of them, right? Okay. Yeah. Your little research on your own discovered what? Okay. But there's like 13 or 14 of them that are in every single one. Well, I think that, that would be the other way around, I think, that whenever you see there's only one recorded in all four, which one would that be? And then there's like three, there are a whole, there's like several that are in three of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So we are going to talk about that. So the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the ones that is in all four gospel accounts. Exactly. So John 
John's the one that's the outlier, okay? But that brings up the question, why then do we have four? How did we arrive at these books? Let me ask this. Which was the first gospel physically written down? It's not a trick question. Not Luke. Not John. Mark. Now, why is it Matthew, then Mark? Legitimately, I don't think I know. <laughs> I don't know if there is a good answer other than Mark was less popular than Matthew. I don't know. But the deal is that Mark was first, okay? So if you have Mark first, and then you have Matthew and Luke, which are basically about the same time, there's about a five to ten year window where they're both being authored, why then do we have four, though? Here's what I would say. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics, right? And the reason we call them synoptics is because they are very similar. Um, it just comes from this Greek word that means seeing at a glance or seeing together. So when you look at them all side by side, they kind of follow the same structure. John is the outlier, and we'll see why here in just a moment. But um, one thing we need to see is that ultimately we must hold, if you go back to week number two, all the way back on September 7th, when we were talking about Bible formation and organization, part one, there in about the last 15 minutes, I talk about how we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. That what God has recorded through men for us and has retained is sufficient. Okay? So we must hold on to that. We must hold that what has been given is sufficient and is, frankly, is necessary. We need four accounts. And we'll talk about that here in just a bit. There have been at least two attempts majorly in our Western tradition um, of people actually trying to get back to just one condensed version. In fact, uh, Anthony was the one that was telling me about this earlier this week, uh, the Dia Tesseron. The Dia Tesseron just means from the four, um, was this Greek compilation of where um, some early church fathers in the year 160 to 175 AD, so about two or three generations after the Gospels were being circulated, they actually took all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they laid them side by side, and they started like compiling one condensed narrative. And we don't have that anymore. You know why? The church rejected it and said, no, we don't need the one, we need the four. Tracking with that? So that's important for us to be able to see that we need these details. The Dia Tesseron, and then also your boy Thomas Jefferson tried to do the same thing. Uh, the Jeffersonian Bible was one of these things that he created. And basically he cut out all of like the supernatural things. So like, you know, the virgin birth, miracles, his deity, the resurrection. He cut all that out, but then everything else he piled together. And in 1820, he made this manuscript of what has now become known as the Jeffersonian Bible. Well, guess what? How many of us read that? We don't. One, because Homeboy was way off his rocker when it comes to orthodox views of Christ, but also, like, you kind of butchered the thing, Doc. Like, you didn't do justice to what we have retained for us. So, why then do we have four accounts? If you're going to write this down, here's your note. Because the four gospel authors, the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all had a different audience in mind and a different purpose for writing. They have a different audience and a different goal. It's as simple as that. They have a different audience that they're writing to, and they have a different goal that they're trying to accomplish as they are doing that. So, let me give you those four right now. Here's what Matthew's audience and goal are. Generally speaking, this is all off of my head. Somebody would disagree. I'm perfectly fine with that. We can have that conversation after the fact. 
Matthew, his audience, generally are Jewish people who are familiar with the Old Testament. That's why you find a lot of Old Testament references in Matthew. Okay? He is writing to generally a Jewish audience, and what his goal is to convince them that this cat named Jesus of Nazareth, that he is in fact the Messiah from the Old Testament. And since he is trying to convince a bunch of Jews who are familiar with the Old Testament about this central figure, it makes sense that he would quote a lot of Old Testament stuff. Yes? There you go. So that's one vantage point, as it were. Cool? You can write these down a little bit later. Driving on. Mark, I've got all these ready for you. Mark, his audience are those who are not familiar with the Old Testament. Think about Roman citizens who are scattered wherever they may be, right? Paul and Luke start skating around all across the ancient world, and they're running into Jews everywhere. Yeah, but you know who they're also running into a lot more frequently? Non-Jews. And so Mark, who's the first person to write down uh, a gospel account, his goal is to portray Jesus as this servant who is constantly on the move, constantly going to accomplish the work that his father sent him to do, and then it just abruptly ends in chapter 16. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that phrase, the Son of God, is only ever uttered by Mark at the very beginning, a couple of demons, and a centurion at the very end, basically. And his goal is to show Jesus is the one who is going and being faithful and serving his Father to bring about the ends that he is called to bring about. Yeah? But that his audience is mainly not very familiar with the Old Testament. Cool? Luke, his audience, are literate Greeks, people who can read Greek, and frankly, most of them probably read Latin as well. That's what, by the way, you know what that's what the word literate means generally in the classic sense. Not that you can read, but more importantly, that you can read Latin and Greek. How many of y'all can read Latin and Greek? You bunch of illiterates. Latin, I can do. Can you read Greek? Then you're illiterate. Ashley, did you take Latin in high school? I guess you're illiterate too. I took Latin. I couldn't read it. Right, don't worry about that. The point is, literate Greeks who have an appreciation of like real compilation and research, so like histories in the ancient you know, sense and the way that they would have been compiled. Well, let's look at Luke chapter 1. I didn't quote it earlier, but I'm going to quote it right now. Luke chapter 1 tells us basically how it is constructed. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and this is what is said for us. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, of the word have delivered to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, lover of God. And that might be a real person. It might be this category of someone who is interested in the things of God and there's this compilation that he's producing. But he's saying, I want to write this that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So his goal is to convince his audience, who are these generally literate Greeks, that Jesus is in fact this perfect man who is also God, the God-man who has come to save the world. That's his goal. Yeah, and you can see how a lot of those are really similar, but they're distinct. And then your boy John's just kind of off the reservation compared to the other three. John, his audience 
is specifically those who are likely already familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This actually helps explain why he doesn't use all the same stories in the same order that they do, because it's already there three different times. So John, instead of giving a baptism narrative, you know what he gives? In the beginning. And he goes all the way back and mirrors Genesis 1. Like, okay, yeah, the baptism, got it. That's important, it's there. The virgin birth, yes, Matthew and Luke, got it. What I want to talk about is Genesis 1, and he mirrors Genesis 1 and John 1 specifically. He is saying, y'all already know this, I'm going to cover something different. And his goal is to convince the audience that is already familiar with the synoptics that Jesus is the eternal God who became flesh. There's a lot of really dis extended conversations that we see in John. Chapters of John are generally much longer than Mark. Like, they just really are. John chapter 8, I think, is 61 verses long. I mean, like, it, it's, it's rough at times, okay? That's just the way it is. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. I want to read this for us. John actually tells us the purpose of his gospel. John 20, verse 30 says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He admits, yeah, there's plenty of things he did. I didn't write it down because the other three did, right? You can just kind of read in between the lines there. They're not written in this book, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He tells you the whole purpose of why he wrote this. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, and we believe that we need all four of these. Yeah? Cool? All right. So, let me run through these four things, and then we're going to come back to our piece of paper here in a second. Number one, each evangelist selected material that would accomplish his goal. Are we tracking with that? If they have a different audience in mind, and they are writing for a different purpose, a different goal is in mind, then yeah, it makes sense that they would pick and choose different things. This is obviously apparent whenever you start reading John, and one of the first things that happens in Jesus' ministry is he gets in the temple and he starts cracking the whip, as it were, and he's turning over tables. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when do they have Jesus clearing the temple? At the very end. Okay? So there's two accounts of Jesus clearing the temple in John, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he does it once at the end. So they are selectively choosing material that's going to bring about the end they want to the, to the audience that they're trying to shoot for. Now, here's the important part. It is not necessary to exhaustively list every detail to be accurate. A common trope and argument against the validity of the Bible from people who are skeptical is to say, look, you've got four completely different accounts of what Jesus did. And I would just ask you a simple question. How many times have you told the story about your first job or your first date with your spouse or the birthday party of your third child when they turned seven? Whatever the story is, if you've ever told it more than once, did you use any variation whatsoever? And the answer to that is, well, yeah, of course. But you're right, yes. Whenever we write an accounting, we have to have four identical things. Unless that happens, then they're all wrong. Says who? 
That's just not how life works, right? So you do not have to have an exhaustive list of details in order for there to be accuracy. In fact, accuracy is not a simple function of detail. It's a function of truthful accounting. Are you tracking with that? Like, that's why this is such a big deal. I can share completely different details and still be telling the truth. Yes? And this is where the old illustration about the Gospels, and I think this breaks down pretty quickly, but for its purposes right now, if I were to put four of us on different corners of this intersection and one wreck happened and I asked all four of y'all to write down an account, if you four didn't write exactly the same words with precisely the same punctuation and everything else grammatically, then all four of you are wrong, correct? No. Yeah? Incidentally, show me your piece of paper. What I want you to do is I want you to slide next to somebody and I want to give you three minutes and you are going to compare notes. You got three minutes? Y'all talk about what you wrote? Go. All right, pencils down. All right, everybody, pencils down. Here's the next thing I need you to do. Hold that thing up. Now I need everybody to pass them to the inside and pass them up, and I'm about to read those out loud. I don't want you to write your name on them. I'm not trying to embarrass folks. No, 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 pass them in, pass them up. That is the requirement. This is not a debate. This is me telling you, do this, and I'm going to read them. Do you have your two? Hey, John? Give me there too, right off the bat. Oh no, you put it, no, you just mixed it up. Whatever, whatever. If we got more, well, he put it on the bottom. Ah, boo. Is this the two? You're about to find out what the purpose of this is. You are about to see. Are these y'all's two? Yeah. Okay, all right. So, I just want us to kind of giggle a little bit. Whose do you think is Kyle Ford's? The one that's got less. Okay, so let's read this real quick. No, no, we're not going to embarrass anybody except you. Nobody but you. Okay, so what Kyle Ford said is, Combat Vet 2005. Met KC. Met KC. Old freshman. 06 date. Everyday busy. Lunch Tuesday, 45 minutes, married 13 years, mom, redhead, grandbabies. Now, is that true? Could you extrapolate, not having heard what I said earlier, could you extrapolate what I told you from that? All right, 2005, 21-year-old combat vet, freshman, Fable, Arkansas. See, we did the homeboy didn't even mention that we're from Arkansas. Like, that's critical. Critical, okay? There you go. Um, first memory in the BCM. Didn't even mention it at all, right? Standing near freshman said, who was that really old freshman underlined? What's the deal, man? Just right there. <laughs> oh, this is where they've got their notes together. Okay, gotcha. Every day was not available. Um, by the way, I said here, according to Kyle, every day busy, every day not available. Well, those aren't the same. We can't use those, right? Correct? Well, let's get another smattering here. All right. Casey and Lee, 2005, University of Arkansas, can tell freshmen. Casey was a sophomore. 
Uh, thought Lee looked old for a freshman. Okay, um, thought I looked old? I don't know if that was precisely what I said, right? You, you see, no, 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 that's not what I said. Her thought was, who is that really old freshman? This says, looked old. So did I have a gray beard? Was I bald then? Because I wasn't. I'll fight you over that, right? I did. I did. I, uh, I had, hey, hey, hey now, okay. When I was in high school, I had hair down to my shoulders, and it was bleach blonde. Grace? Grace has seen the pic. The hair was a little bit shorter, but that was there. Uh, ask her for a date. Couldn't come up with a date to go. Lunch on Tuesday, 45 minutes, Subway. Mom has suspicious. Oh, well, I, you didn't have to single yourself out. Uh, wanted grandkids. So was my mom suspicious that, like, we were having sex and, like, that? Okay. Whoever used a blue pen, we're reading yours now. How LW and KC met. 21-year-old freshman, Casey was a sophomore, first memory. Who is that really old freshman? Thank you for the quote, as opposed to looking really old. There we go. Same circle of friends, ask Casey out, every night busy for two months, married 13 years, two weeks later telling mom about Casey, I can't wait for redheaded grandbabies. No, 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 I'm not at all saying that. Now, whoever's another blue, uh, asked Casey on a date, she said yes, but officer in sorority, he in leadership at BCM, between schedules every night was taken, found lunch on a Tuesday for 45 minutes at Subway, uh, how to woo, LOL, right? Here's the deal. Did I say LOL? Like, no. But is that really what I meant? Absolutely. That's, that's an accurate retelling. Have I beaten this horse sufficiently? Like, you see how every one of these, that's five that we just read, none of them are identical. Not even identical in saying this was the most important detail. But yet, all five of those, even the ones that I balled up and tore, no offense, that was for dramatic purposes. All five of those are accurate, are they not? Now, if we were to extrapolate over the time that we have left, which it's 710, we got plenty of time. If we were to extrapolate over time, do you think we could reconstruct out of all of these something that's going to near a pretty close approximation to maybe not word for word, but probably pretty stinking close. This is, in many ways, similar to how the gospel accounts came about. It is. Now, the one thing that you didn't have, because I sprung this on you, was you didn't have the Holy Spirit residing in you, superintending this process, inspiring you to write. You didn't have that advantage. But the gospel writers did, right? So whenever they take their audience and their goal and the Holy Spirit impressing upon them what to write, yes, it is absolutely certain that there are going to be different details. And that is not only understandable, it is to be expected. So here's our next exercise. We are going to look at Jesus' baptism accounts. So that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So here's what I want us to do. I'm going to give you, it is 7-11 right now. I'm going to give you about four minutes to scan those, and then I'm going to ask one question. Okay? 
Y'all ready for that? The texts are going to be up there on the screen. If you're watching online, it's like right here on the, on the video. Read those, and then in uh, three, two, three minutes or so, I'm going to ask you one singular question. Ready, set, go. So, did everybody get to read all of the baptism accounts from Matthew, Mark, and Luke about Jesus getting baptized? Yeah? All right, are you ready for your one question? Which one's the most accurate? Which one's the most accurate? And every one of you know, like, well, it's a trick question. Yeah, it is. It is, because that's the point. They are all accurate. Are they identical? I mean, Mark has three verses, whereas Luke has five. And the same for Matthew. Like, even if you look at the sentence structure, Mark is briefer than the others. So just by word count, they can't be identical. No, not. But which one's the most accurate? Let's do it again. Let's have that conversation about the accounting of the resurrection of Jesus. Which one's the most accurate? Okay, that's unfair. Okay, cool. How about whenever we look at Paul's conversion that's told in Acts three different times, once by Luke and then once on the lips of Paul, which one of those is the most accurate? If you start looking especially at Paul and every time that Luke tells the story initially in what, Acts 9, and then you see it again in Acts 21 and then 25, maybe I'm making that up. I probably should have looked it up before I said this, right? Joella says she's going to correct me later on. So if you, if you need those verses, Joella will hook you up and they're getting a ticket. When you look at those, Paul is talking to different people. He's talking to different people. But it's the same dude, Luke, who wrote all of Acts, including the first account where he tells the narratively, this is what happened like in real time, as it were. And then later in the story, he's recounting Paul before these kings, right? Here's the deal. You need all three of those, and they all provide a more well-rounded view of what happened in that moment. Word choice is going to differ. Um... Charlie, if me and you were to describe how to install an electrical receptacle, do you think you and I would use the exact same word choice when we described it? No, it hasn't. Well, we've been talking about this electrical box for, this I even just did it right there, this receptacle, we've been talking about it for two weeks, and I will routinely use two or three different words to describe what I'm talking about, and yet, Charlie's going to use the correct one every time, right? Because he knows what he's doing. I don't. Mark has some pretty simplistic Greek. Luke can get kind of complex. Paul, when you're in Romans, that dude's off the rails, right? He just is. He is going to use different word choice and structure of how he puts his sentences together because the guy was a little more educated than the fisherman Peter. Yeah. So it's not crazy that we would see differences. In fact, you should anticipate them. To wit, let me illustrate this, given a couple more pieces of information here. Whoever this is, one, misspelled Casey. Don't be offended. Everyone misspells Casey because her name is spelled wrong. Okay, It's K-A-C-I-E. 
weirdo, right? That's how my wife spells her name. That's not the typical name spelling, but if I were to compare this KC to all these others, we would probably have more KC spelled this way than we would her actual name. But would we know who we're talking about? Yeah. Additionally, there is, this is the top line, profits, uh, covenantal enforces, enforcers, uh, brings action in line with covenant. Does God have to warn you about judgment? Does that have anything to do with me and Casey? What you will find in the history of textual criticism, when people are looking at translations, there will be little notes in the margin that the scribes wrote. And sometimes, you know what happens to those things? They get put into the translation. Exactly the same thing happened here at a micro scale, right? So whenever you think about the first four weeks of how the Bible is organized and stitched together, you just saw that happen in real time. Yeah? Here's another good example. Um, I don't know whoever wrote this one. They put woo, two question marks, like they were just questioning, like, I don't even know what that is. But then the next statement is, Lee Wood knows wooing. So, like, I agree. Yes. So whoever wrote that, you're right, right? Throw some woo at her, Hank, see what sticks. Um, the very next line is telling his mom, and then a dash, what? Exclamation point. Now, I know what the reference there is, like me trying to like, mom, what, what is going on? Because I don't know what's going on in your head. And then can't wait for. You see how this works out? Like, they don't even know what I'm talking about with woo, but then the immediately following that is a declarative statement. Lee knows wooing. Yeah? I'm going to hold on. I'm going to frame this one. I'm going to keep that. Whoever it was that wrote that, come see me after this. Here's my point. Whenever you see the gospel narratives, this is one of those places in Bible nerddom of how we fight and talk about the Bible within the church and with skeptics outside the church. These are the types of things that people levy against the Bible, but I just demonstrated for you in a very silly way that there are very good reasons why there are differences, right? But yet, as someone who is going to have this approach of faithfully approaching the Bible and believing what it is that it says and it's the Word of God, that makes all the difference in the world to say, no, I, I can see why there are going to be differences, and not only do I accept that they are there, but I am glad that they are there. That's not how skeptics view the Bible, and that's okay, right? So, this is the deal. When you come to the Gospels, you have to come with this knowledge of looking for how to interpret um, historical narrative, because that's how most of this is. That means there's not going to be a whole lot of... Uh, not going to be a whole lot of editorial comments. Woo, Lee knows wooing, right? There's not a whole lot of those comments, but you've got to look for them. When you start seeing a whole bunch of repetition, that tells you this is important. When you start seeing sentence structure change, and then there's like a really long, drawn-out sentence, well, now you know something important is there. You have to pay attention to key markers of when the setting and the time has changed, right? So everything we learned about historical narrative, you've got to lift, and you've got to throw it down onto the Gospels. Okay, When you see that, it's going to make it a whole lot easier to understand what's going on. So, we, we didn't even talk about these accounts and what is different and what is not. And I ask an absurd question about what is most accurate, but here's what ends up happening, and I'll fight you over this because I think it's true. We will find 
one of the four Gospels and say, I really like that one more than the others. And I'm okay with that. By all means, have a preference. Cool. But don't have that preference at the expense of the other three accounts because we need all of them to provide this well-formed view of Jesus. The exact same way that we need Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. We need all three to provide this well-formed view of a good, well-lived life. When it comes to Jesus, we need all four accounts to see how he lived perfectly, how he died on our behalf, how he was buried and resurrected. We need all four of those. Yeah? I have seven more minutes straight for Q&A. Rich, what you got? Comment. Mm-hmm. But they all three say, at kind of the end of it, they all say, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. With whom I'm well pleased. God is announcing to everyone who was there that this is my son. Yeah. So with the gospel accounts, there are details that are different, but they all three corroborate each other, and the main proclamation at the end is identical. And then my other part two of my comment, Part two? Why not have any variation? Yeah. But if they all are a little different, but they tell basically the same story, I think that makes yep. it much more cohesive. Yep. It is, even whenever you're looking at criminal investigations with four people writing an, a, an account of what happened on a street corner that they all foresaw from different vantage points, it is actually more accurate and easier to tell that they are being truthful if there is variation. If I told you that that happened and we had the four accounts that they wrote and they were word for word identical, what would your first thought be? Okay, who, who actually wrote this? Is this four copies? Like how did we get four exactly the same? You are immediately suspicious because that's not how this works, right? Because we need all four. That's good. Other questions? You can have more comments, Rich. I don't want to hog, hog it all. But, uh, but when I think of the Gospels, I think of guys that really were with Jesus for like three straight years. Mm -hmm. And they were eyewitnesses. Right. And they wrote down what they saw in their lifetime. Which yep. Which is very powerful in corroborating ancient writings. Yep. So the evangelists, they were men who were with Jesus in some manner. And now that's actually not 100% true, though, now, is it? If you remember back in the first two weeks when we talked about Bible organization and formation, we talked about canonicity, and there are you know, a couple of major requirements. And one of them is for a, Bible, a book to be in the Bible, it has to be apostolic, or it must have apostolicity. Is Mark an apostle? And the answer to that is... No. Is Luke an apostle? No. And what is it that makes someone an apostle? They saw the risen Jesus or they saw Jesus physically. Now, why is it that they get in? Who was Mark's primary source? Peter. Who was Luke's primary source? Well, primary would be Mark, 
but also his other detailed information he gathers and who did he pal around the ancient world with for decades? Paul. So that's how he gets in, right? So you kind of see that they are connected in some way, yeah? And as they are telling these stories, especially with Mark, you see the disciples don't come out looking all that great. They really don't. Why is that? Who's his main source? The guy that routinely in the Gospels doesn't come out looking great because he wasn't doing so hot. Peter. He's the guy in Mark chapter 8 says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. This great proclamation. And then like five verses later says, no, that's never going to happen to you, Jesus. And Jesus basically calls him Satan, right? Okay, man, we kind of went really good. Woo. And then making this proclamation, right? You can kind of see it in reverse there. He spoke better than he knew. Lee knows wooing, but then woo. What is that? You're the Christ. Yeah, absolutely. And then Jesus immediately tells Peter, well, this is what the Christ is going to do. He's going to suffer and he's going to die. And then Peter's like, no, man, that can't be it. Woo. Yeah. See how that works? Other comments, questions? Not rich. I can do it. I'll do it afterwards. You can grab it afterwards. Okay. Other questions? Or comments? Or gripes? Concerns? Complaints? I'll listen to them. Can I read the last verse of John? You can read the last verse of John. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have room for the book of Jesus. Right. So, so telling them that he's the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. So Mark says the beginning of the gospel of John, or the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Like, well, then what is the end? Is it the very end of chapter 16? Well, I'm inclined to think that, like, no, 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 the whole gospel narrative about what Jesus began to do, that is the beginning. And then where we interact with that story, even today, that's where we're still seeing that gospel message, that gospel proclamation go out. So it's still going. John says, look, if we wrote everything down, we'd be killing a whole bunch of trees. And we, in fact, we wouldn't have enough, right? And that's, that makes sense to me, yeah? Because he just admits you don't have to have an exhaustive listing of every single detail in order for it to be correct. He just said that. And we would go, well, of course, yeah? All right, other thoughts that we want to land on with the Gospels. All right, next week, we are going to do Gospel Genre Part 2. And what we are going to do is we are going to look at parables. And here's my argumentation for why we're going to just focus in on parables is because if you know how to read historical narrative, which we've already talked about, go listen to the recording that was back on October 5th and you'll get it. You'll get a huge chunk of how to read the Gospels. Look for the guideposts of the, of the narrative when the change of setting or time or whatever it is. Look for those things. Look for repetition, right? Know how to read poetry. But there's one part about the Gospels that are generally difficult for a lot of Christians to deal with, and those are the parables. And so we're basically going to talk about nothing but the parables next week. After next week, we have Thanksgiving break. We won't be meeting here on the, uh, excuse me, on the 23rd. And then after that, we're going to talk about basically all the letters. Right? We're going to talk about, we've already handled Acts, because Acts is part of historical narrative. Done. Moving on. Right? 
So we're going to handle everything from Romans all the way through the end of 3 John, essentially in Jude. We're going to hit that whole section. And then the last week, which is going to be December 7th, that is our last week we're going to be meeting here. We had on there scheduled a possible Q&A session if we needed it. Um, but with the Missions Journey kids scheduled, they're not going to need it. So we're not going to meet on the 14th. So you better get your questions in now. Start writing them down. Yeah. And we are going to end on December 7th. We're going to basically be talking about Revelation and some Daniel, but we're going to be talking about apocalyptic literature. Yeah? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have everything we need for life and godliness. We have um, recorded for our benefit what it is that you felt was necessary and sufficient for us. And God, I pray that we would press into learning more about who you are and what it is that was accomplished for us um, on our behalf by Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would show us more how to be confident in what it is that you have written for our benefit and that we would love you more as a result of learning how to read your word. Um, and God, I pray you would be honored by this and I pray that we will have been edified. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen.